so that we can then later on, once we find a little bit more calm, once we're not so physically aroused, we can then sort of practice this skill. And to your other point, it is a practice. It is habit. We have to train our minds and our bodies to allow this experience to happen. Now let the magic begin. Hello, hello, Jaima, Jaima, it is Raquel, and welcome to You're on Magic, a podcast for the creative and the curious soul. And note here that the sponsors you hear in the midst of the episode will be linked in the show notes, or you can find them at youronmagic.life slash sponsors. And while you're on the site, feel free to connect with the community and the membership, which has 52 meditations. And I even have this little topic box where I'm taking suggestions for podcast episodes and intend to do a dedicated Q&A from the questions submitted. Those are my favorite kind of episodes to record. So we'd love to receive questions from you. So feel free to submit whatever comes to heart. Heads up, you may be able to hear really strong wind in the background of just the intro only, but it is windy as can be right now. And I kind of love it though. My flight was canceled. Surprise, Mercury retrograde. (laughs) No, but I I kind of love sequestering myself while it's windy. And I've actually had to sequester myself for the past eight days because your girl was so smart and burnt her foot and her hand. Her hand has a first degree burn and my foot has a second degree burn and it takes some time to heal. But aloe vera, I'm telling you, is a game changer. And I have, of course, other topicals that have helped so much, but I've never stayed inside the house this long. I usually go out on walks, if anything, or go outside in some way. Nope, this has been quite a learning curve indeed, quite a pivot. But looking back, I'm actually very grateful for this rest time that was soul needed. Anyway, so this episode was also soul needed and also a pivot. I love having someone from the sciences come, especially one that can appreciate the power of spirituality and mindfulness and incorporate that into whatever they're helping people out with, with their respective field. And in today's guest case, Jesse Finkelstein is a doctoral student in clinical psychology and a DBT therapist. What I love is that he created this, it almost looks like an oracle deck because it has a variety of different cards and it has a pocket guide, but he's created this powerful deck called The Game of Real Life which is a card game rooted in dialectical behavior therapy, which uses mindfulness to teach emotional problem solving and interpersonal skills. And of course, Jesse dives into DBT throughout this podcast episode, along with the power of identifying helpful versus unhelpful thoughts instead of labeling them good or bad, and why acknowledging your feelings leads to an opportunity for change and growth. And he even talks about the connection between pain and purpose and why they are two sides of the same coin, along with spirituality and science. And he even provides so many tools to self-soothe and access emotional freedom. And another power, the power of validation. You'll hear him say that word a lot. It's like a motif throughout this podcast episode. And yeah, this was a very powerful episode and I really resonated with it. There were some topics we covered that I had to get a little vulnerable. (laughs) But what's new? What's new? There was also something, just a little disclaimer, we talk about what's going on in the world today. And I have an inkling of a feeling I'm not the only one feeling frustrated and grief and sadness and a variety of different colors of emotions right now. And it was nice to talk to Jesse about that. And that is actually why I put out this episode now, even though we recorded it this week, but I decided that this felt very relevant for what many of us are experiencing right now due to the mass shootings and more. So I hope that the messages he has to share from this when I unveil my fire... (laughs) 
are helpful for you. And he was so compassionate and mindful about it. And I appreciate him for that. And yeah, so I hope that you enjoy this episode. And as always, with every episode, pocket what resonates with you and throw out whatever doesn't. This episode deeply resonated with me. I felt it. I felt Jesse's messages and I felt his radiant, vibrant, and brilliant energy. I was captivated throughout the whole episode. So I hope that you enjoy and let's get on with the show, shall we? And now, I believe it is time to let the magic begin with Jesse Finkelstein. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so honored to have you on, especially after reading all about you. And I'm so excited to dive into a variety of things with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. What is currently lighting you up most in this season of your life? Oh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of just one thing. And I'm also thinking about in light of everything that's happening in the world, what's keeping me sort of together and somewhat grounded. Um, I feel like this is going to sound kind of saccharine, but like truly my friendships. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I find that being with other people I love and care about who love and care about me, it feels really nice. It's a nice thing, right? Yes. I agree. That is the sweetness of life is our friends and our relationships. And I'm sure that there's a reason why you also, because of your relationships, decided to navigate the waters of psychology. And it's really exciting to actually talk to somebody who is a student of clinical psychology and also a DBT therapist. So I want to get into all the things. Mm. But first, I'm really also curious about your creative expression. Have you always been an illustrative artist and how did you get into it? So I, you know, I went to school for my undergraduate and I double majored in like visual arts and political science. And I was sort of, I feel like always tugging between these sort of like right brain, left brain activities. And then um, afterwards, I was doing work and I was always surrounded by lots of creative, talented individuals, but I just never thought of myself as one of them. I liked graphic design, but I never thought myself of myself as an illustrator. And then it just so happened that like all those doodles that I was making came in real handy when it you know, came time to help illustrate some DBT skills. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm an illustrator now. <laughs> and now you're an illustrator and you somehow integrated this art, what your study of psychology and DBT and your knowledge of the psyche with your art. And somehow it, you know, transmuted into this beautiful, the game of real life. That's what it's called, right? Pocket guy. Mm-hmm. That's the one. How did that come about? It's what a brilliant idea. So I, I just want to know what sparked this. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, psychologists were, were great at creating these tools to help reduce suffering. What we're not so great at are sort of creating these tools to make them things that people really want to engage with, to make it things that people want to hold and like participate in. We don't know how to sell it. Oh, good point. And, you know, my background had always sort of been in sort of graphic design, design design-related things. And so when I came to graduate school at the ripe age of 35, I was just sort of like, oh, I was like, this stuff is brilliant. And we got to figure out a way of packaging it so that people really want to participate in the experience. Mm, That was very innovative of you because I think a lot of people are like, DBT, this means I have to go to some sort of course and try to do all this stuff or I have to go talk to a professional about whatever, but instead they can just do it at home. Well, you know, it's if, if at the very least, like this is, if this is someone's like first introduction to these skills, to make it more approachable, um, to make it a bit friendlier than we often think of quote unquote therapy, then I feel like I've done my job. And like, listen, a game is never going to like replace comprehensive therapy and so forth. And, but, and at the same time, like, you know, if this is the, if this is the gateway, then, you know, 
like sure like you know yeah like that's and that's sort of like how like what design is it's the thing yes. that sort of draws our attention and then allows us to sort of have this experience with pro- perhaps like new material we've never seen before so smart and so what is dbt by the way because we keep saying this and people might be listening mm. and they're like what in the world is this and how can this help me what is he talking about <laughs> what are these two people talking about <laughs> all right so dbt stands for dialectical behavior therapy And it was a therapy that was created in the 1980s by Dr. Marshall Linehan, uh, specifically for folks who were experiencing what we call emotion dysregulation. And what I mean by that is people who experience their emotions really intensely for long periods of time and have difficulty sort of finding that sort of emotional baseline, returning Mm. to sort of their emotional baseline. And what that often looked like were individuals who were engaging in suicidal and non-suicidal self-interest behaviors. Mm-hmm. And she created a host of different skills in mindfulness, interpersonal communication, tolerating distress, regulating your emotions, all of these skills to help people you know, live meaningful, valued lives. Brilliant. And you also said emotional baseline. How can we recognize this emotional baseline? Because that in itself needs a definition. That's a really good question. Yeah. You know, so the way that I look at it is oftentimes when I'm working with a client, it's like, okay, on a, like your, your emotions, let's say they sort of exist on a scale of zero to 10. And different emotions do different things to us. And at 10, we are at our, let's say, most activated. We're feeling that emotion most intensely. And oftentimes at 10, we tend to engage in ineffective behaviors. We want to get rid of that emotional experience. So that's at the very top. At the very bottom, or like when you're at a zero to, let's say, a three, you've sort of managed some level of equanimity. You're you know, you're going about your day, you can tolerate what's going on, you can be effective, and you can sort of access what we refer to in DBT, your wise mind, which is that sort of sweet spot between your emotion mind and your reasonable mind, a place where you've sort of, you can tap into that inherent wisdom. And oftentimes I feel like your baseline can and may coincide with that. You're sort of going around through your day, sort of living in this place of equanimity. So how does the game of life then, uh, how does that use DBT, the practices of DBT? So each of, as I mentioned, so there are four modules in DBT. And each of the modules teach very specific, very um, accessible, and very clear skills. Mm. And so what I did with the game is I took those skills and basically I created a bunch of fake conflict cards. And in the game, someone plays a conflict card, you put it down the table, and each person has a hand of skills that they're randomly given. Okay. And so you, as a participant, make an argument for why your skill is most uh, relevant for resolving that conflict. Ah, um, clever. Yeah, so it's a way of sort of practicing. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> it is. You know, I try. I'm excited to play it. I have a little guide. That's, a, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's, I guess a, playing is a weird word for it, but that's just what I No, like no, say. no. That's play it. Listen, <laughs> you know, life is, this is, this is what we're here for. We're only here for a bit of time. We might as well True. treat it like a game to some extent. Because it, it is. Play is important. Yep. Yep. What and are some I, of the skills, think, by the way, the skill examples? Yeah. So an example of a skill is, let's say like in mindfulness, in the mindfulness module, uh, we have skills called the what in the how skills. So the what skills are sort of break down what exactly we're doing when we're being mindful. We're observing and describing, let's say. So observing, let's say, what's going on in this very moment. Um, Mm. I'm observing that uh, I have, you know, 
my I can feel sort of the vibration of my voice as it you know passes through my throat, mm. and so I'm at once noticing that, and then I'm describing and labeling it. Let's say in this moment I'm experiencing some joy speaking with you, so I'm labeling and noticing that emotion. Mm, same. And then the <laughs> and then the non and then the how skills are how we practice mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So we do it non judgmentally. We, you know, oftentimes, many of us, most of us will have thoughts and emotions and experiences that we tend to judge. We tend to try to get rid of, or we tend to sort of judge others. So, you know, these skills sort of reinforce the sort of the core tenet of mindfulness, which is deliberately sort of attending to the present moment without judgment. And, and these skills, you know, so there's, so that's mindfulness in, you know, interpersonal effectiveness. We've got skills that are about sort of teaching us to sort of set limits with others, to get what we want, to maintain our self-respect, emotion regulation. It's all about skills to sort of reduce our vulnerability to negative emotions and change how we feel in certain ways. And distress tolerance. Distress tolerance is... Basically, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when we're sort of at, let, let's say, 8, 9, 10 on that scale of emotional intensity, those are sort of what we call like sort of like that's our crisis moment. Mm. Oftentimes when we're feeling that intense emotion, we engage in what we refer to as crisis urges. And we may do really ineffective things to get rid of that emotion to, or to find a solution. And so when we're practicing distress tolerance, what we're trying to do is in different situations, either like literally reducing that physiological arousal, like turning down the volume on our emotional intensity. And we can do that through all sorts of really amazing tools. Or we're trying to just get through the crisis without making it worse. This is such a powerful tool to help elevate our self-awareness of what really is going on, what's the root cause of whatever our behaviors in life might have led to, like, for example, addiction or whatever else. Like, what a great tool for anyone to take some time, maybe have a little bit of, like, right after their meditation, or maybe they don't even want to meditate, they just want to dive into this, like, (laughs) something, you know, in their morning, or I I like to call this, like, a, a dedication space of grace or just a dedication, soulful time to just take time for yourself to bring awareness to whatever really is going on. And this this is truly one of the best ways I've ever, ever heard of. Plus, it's beautiful. You have your artwork. And I'm just like visualizing a lot of people taking that time, dedicating time for themselves to something like this. I, I so appreciate you saying that. I mean, I like these skills. So when I arrived in graduate school, I didn't know that much about DBT. And I have to say, finding DBT, finding these skills, and then helping others use them, it's it's been transformative in my own life. It's been transformative in the lives of the clients that I've worked with. Um, the skills really change, to your point. Like, they become a daily practice, and they change how I've related to the world and myself. It's going to transform people. Let's just say it's going to shift something within because they might feel stuck or stagnant or deeply, you know, sad or alone. But do you recommend that something like this on top of actually seeking professional help and therapy? Yeah, I mean, you know, the game is it's it's one additional tool to either a practice your skills or b develop sort of your an introduction to DBT. You know, if you're if you're really experiencing some profound suffering than finding a clinician who is practiced in an evidence-based therapy. Mm-hmm. That's always, you know, I like, Key. I gotta say, like, therapy's <laughs> fucking awesome. Can I curse on it? it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Therapy's fucking, like, it, it's amazing. Therapy's fucking awesome. <laughs> it, it, just the tools that I have learned as a clinician have changed my life and the tools that I'm able to then impart to the folks that I work with has changed life. It's, it's just an amazing, uh, I feel like at times undervalued resource. 
I 100% agree. And I know that this is going to sound like a strange question, but I've shifted into this new perspective for me where as in like the past two or three years, I let go of a lot of old stories that people would say about evidence-based stuff. What is evidence-based and why that is so important to seek help from somebody that actually has been through the studies like yourself. Does that make sense? So, oh my, not only, not only does this make sense, you are saying. <laughs> words if you could see my face i'd be smiling this is this is the question that lights up my life <laughs> okay, um, uh, okay well i i do have a question for you so i mean mm-hmm. well let me let me first start just by giving so ev- when, when we say evidence-based what we mean are treatments that have gone through sort of rigorous scientific studies yes so for instance with dbt there have been a number a host of studies where you're looking at dbt delivered and oftentimes randomized controlled trials so that means that you have folks that are given randomly dbt compared to folks that are given let's say treatment as usual Mm -hmm. and then you're using various measures to see over the course of the treatment and long-term, the outcomes. Yep. So are individuals in DBT, let's say, getting better in certain ways compared to people who are doing treatment as usual? And and that's what we mean by evidence-based. Yeah. And um, I think that sometimes, I think psychology has gotten a reputation as at times as being sort of like this weird um, sort of unknowable opaque process like it's like we're tinkering around with things that we don't really understand i there are some folks who do believe that and i come from a sort of a a line of thinking about therapy about the mind about our behaviors Mm -hmm. that is grounded in sort of the scientific literature, that we can measure things, that we can change behaviors and begin to understand how we can, like the mechanisms of change, that that things aren't necessarily unknowable. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious because like from your, you mentioned sort of this transition that you had, like <laughs> what, what sparked your curiosity, your interest in evidence-based? Well, if I'm being honest, so I went to USC and I was very much into evidence-based. We did a lot of research there mm. and then something happened when I started to dapple in spirituality mm-hmm. and then yeah. for whatever reason, my mind shifted from like, oh, the science doesn't really even know what they're talking about. And I, I really was hypnotized by this for a while. That's the best word I can use. You know, it's it's funny because I I hear you. Like before I went to graduate school, so I I was really skeptical of what we refer to as behavioral therapies. Yeah. Which, you know, DBT is one in which most evidence-based therapies are these are the ones that like the oftentimes like the scientific literature is looking at is our behavioral therapies. Mm-hmm. I thought it was sort of mechanistic. I thought it was cold. I thought like, oh, there's no way science can really fully understand the mind. And I don't, I don't, firstly, I don't think that science and spirituality are in any way incompatible. Exactly. Yep. I think that there are things about the world, ourselves, our minds that we may never know. Yep. And I also believe that we can study our behaviors really effectively. And in fact, we have a lot of scientific evidence for treatments that work. Mm-hmm. So I think it's holding both of those. And it's, 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 if I'm going to say it's, it's a bit of a dialectic. Yep. Yeah, it is a bit of a dialectic right there. Um, <laughs> and I love that you also incorporate mindfulness into this and you've studied, I noticed with uh, Jack Cornfield and Dr. Tara Brock, who are two people I find to be absolutely expanding. I would love to know why you incorporated mindfulness and why this is so important. So, you know, it's so it's interesting. I I started I had I started Vipassana practice when I was in college. I love that. And it was it was transformative. It helped me sort of just navigate just a lot of shit that was going on in my own, like when you're in college and you're, you know, you're <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, 
I never thought about it in the context of psychology. Mm. And I think one of the things that drew me to DBT is that mindfulness is actually the core of the treatment. Mm -hmm. And it's the sense that we can't make effective change if we are unaware of how we're behaving. (laughs) That, you know, Mm -hmm. that like mindfulness is that power between, let's say, the uh, like the cue yeah. and our response. Within that gap are an infinite number of possibilities. And that in order to recognize those possibilities, we have to be mindful. And so that's that's what started me off, sort of reinvigorated my mindfulness journey. And then I am currently in a mindfulness teacher training, as you mentioned. Um, and I just, I, you know, Whatever therapy you do, whether it's DBT or what have you, if you have a spiritual practice, like if there's one thing that I, you know, could wish everyone could take away, well, if there's two things, one, get proper sleep mm-hmm. and two, <laughs> practice mindfulness. I love a natural look with some shimmer. I love that lightly soft contour, but add, of course, some shimmer and some blush, some highlighter, a whisk of eyeliner on the outer edges, and, of course, a strong lengthening mascara that does not clump or flake. That's basically the look I usually go for. So whether you like a more natural look or full glam or somewhere in between, you'd love Thrive Cosmetics because you're not only getting quality cosmetics, but you're also contributing to a good cause. And you also might already know of them as they have a pretty viral, vibrant turquoise tube on social media for their mascara. And it is a game changer. It is. I'm so happy that Thrive Cosmetics is not just stunning, but also 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And it's packed with clean, skin-loving ingredients. Their high-performance formula set the bar high with uncompromising standards. So no wonder their bestsellers boast thousands of glowing five-star reviews. And what also makes them even more special is that every purchase with Thrive Cosmetics contributes to making communities thrive. Hence the name. I mean, it's also spelled C-A-U-S-E Medics. Thrive Cosmetics. So it's not just about beauty. I mean, they're truly about giving back. So with your support, they donate products and funds to support communities in need through responsive giving. That's why they've been my beauty obsession since 2020. I've been using their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara since 2020. I mean, this is a magical mascara that lasts all day without a hint of clumping or smudging or flaking. And removal is a breeze as all I need is warm water and a washcloth. Pretty simple. And also here's the best part. The nourishing ingredients in this flake-free tubing formula not only gives you the length and definition that you crave, but also it supports longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. It's a love story for your lashes. So Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com magic. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash magic for 20% off your first order. Uh, how can we identify helpful versus unhelpful thoughts and be more intentional about our internal dialogue? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I, so I, I'm going to say this. I think for a lot of folks, and a lot of folks that I work with, and even me at sometimes, I fall into the trap of thinking that there are good thoughts and there are bad thoughts. That there are good ways of thinking and bad ways, good ways of feeling and bad ways. And I don't believe in good or bad. I, I think that there are things that are helpful or unhelpful, things that are effective or ineffective. And we can measure those things by our goals. If something is helping you move towards your goals, helping you move towards a life worth living, then it happens to be helpful or effective. So a thought that is in line with that, that's a helpful thought. A thought that is getting in the way of you moving towards those goals, I would consider an unhelpful thought. And the reason why I distinguish between that and good or bad is that when we start judging things as good or bad, it adds sort of this patina of shame. And all of a sudden, we're no longer 
invested in our goals. Now we're just fighting ourselves, <laughs> which is not helpful. Which is not exactly, <laughs> and it's and it's it, it it sounds so odd. Like you know, it's like all of a sudden now we have this thought that we've labeled bad, and then you know, it's like I could see it in session with folks where it's like okay, I have this bad thought. Oh, I'm a bad person for having this thought. And then it becomes this ruminative spiral about this thought. And then it becomes like this meta exercise. And it's just like, <laughs> drop the rope. Like, who gives a shit? Yep. Is this a thought that's helping you move towards your life worth living goals? That is brilliant, by the way, because there are some thoughts that I would have labeled subconsciously as this is a bad behavior. This is a bad thought. This is unhealthy. When really that does actually begin a spiral. And so to maybe relabel this as unhelpful. So, you know, shift it a bit. It's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just not helping you right now. It's not serving you right now. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, maybe not give it too much credit for labeling this thing bad. Exactly. And, and what I love about what you just said is it's not helping you right now. Yeah. And the thing that I really want to highlight, and this is this is one of the core sort of dialectical um, statements in DBT. We're all doing the best that we can, and we can all do better. Meaning that, you know, we all, like, even if we have an unhelpful thought, that thought is serving a function. No one, I have yet to meet a client, a patient, a person who is actively trying to make their lives more miserable, who is actively trying to suffer more. We're all doing the best we can in light of the information that we have, in light of our biology, in light of what we've been taught. And so I think one really important step when an unhelpful thought comes up is to validate like, oh, here is this unhelpful thought. It makes sense that I would have this thought. Like offer yourself some compassion. This thought maybe served a purpose at one point in your life and it's not serving it right now. Ooh. And you could probably apply that as well to people in your life, right? Absolutely. Relationships, behaviors. You know, you mentioned substance use earlier. Like like, you know, no one wants to suffer. Like we're all trying and no, no one wants to, pain, like no one wants to feel pain and pain is inevitable. And I think that oftentimes when we get caught in sort of these ineffective strategies is because we're unwilling to accept the very real reality that pain, that we're going to experience pain. And so I think one very powerful thing that you can offer yourself is that self-validation, whether it's relationships, whether it's with behaviors that you engage in, whether it's with thoughts, that you're doing the best that you can, that maybe this is not, you know, you can always do better and this has served you at one point in your life. Otherwise, it wouldn't have appeared this way. I also have read that you think pain and purpose are two sides of the same coin. And mm. so I'm curious why you believe this, why you see this, and also what pain can reveal or how it can reveal what's important to us. I love that question <laughs> because I, I think that oftentimes when I see folks suffering and struggling and I hear folks saying, like, I don't know what to do with my life. I feel like I have no purpose. What what becomes a very helpful tool for both of us in this sort of process of exploration about finding meaning is looking at those tender spots, looking at those painful places. Because here's the thing, if something wasn't meaningful for you, then it wouldn't cause you pain if you didn't have it. Mm. So uh, let me ground that a bit more. If there is a relationship that is causing you pain, then there is something about that relationship or there's something about having relationships broadly that you value. And so the things that cause us pain, the things that cause us distress can help us awaken to what in our life is valuable, what we want to move to. Mm. Ooh, do you mind elaborating this, on this a bit more as well? Because yeah. I feel like a lot of us are having our tender spots. I love that you said that word. Oh my gosh. 
but yet we're like, oh, no, this is so messy. I don't even want to look at it. How does this have anything to do with what is going to help feed me or serve me in life? So I, I'm, I am trying to, so we, like, well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. It, I don't know how much you're willing to disclose. Is there, a t- is there a tender spot or a painful spot that you can sort of maybe broadly identify in this moment? Sure, sure. Um, let's see. There's quite a few. So I'm like, okay, which one do I choose? Um, okay, well, I sometimes feel the loneliness factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at times you ob- observe this experience of loneliness. Yes. And you know, I, without us getting too deep, I think what that clearly very succinctly reveals to me that, and tell me if I'm wrong, but that connection is meaningful to you. I believe so. Yeah. Because connect. Yes. Yes. Oh, connection. I thought you meant that connection, but yes. Connection. Con- oh, no, 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 no. That yes. connection, connection yes. with others connection is with meaningful. Others is meaningful. Yes. So, so here's, and, and so here's the thing is that like that pain of loneliness is, it's going to come up. I mean, this is part of the human experience. We will all at some point experience some measure of loneliness, I imagine. Maybe there's mm-hmm. a couple out there who won't, but congratulations, Mazel. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but for most of us, we will. And for those of us who really value, because not everyone necessarily values connection with others. Everyone has different sets of values, right? And it sounds like for you, and I can imagine, even by virtue that you have this podcast, that connection with others connecting with people deeply is very important to you. It's something that you value. And so it makes complete sense to me when you perhaps feel deprived of that connection, how painful that must be. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so that's a way in which the thing that causes us pain, the thing that causes us distress reveals to us what is important, what we want to move towards. And so then the next step would be knowing that loneliness would come up, knowing that that pain is inevitable. How can you engage in behaviors and actions mm. that lead you towards connection? Mm-hmm. And I imagine hosting this podcast, doing this right yes. now, I mean, hopefully yes. would be one, <laughs> but like that help. would be one way. Mm-hmm. This does help. This The podcast is a huge source of how I feel connected to the world and to others. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yes. I mean, so so in this moment, in this very moment, you are engaged in committed action. Yeah. You are engaged in uh, in DBT speak, what we would call like accumulating positives in the long term. Yeah. You are engaged in moving towards your life worth living goals. And using this information as well, because you talk about emotional freedom, Mm -hmm. what are some tools that we can use to self-soothe and access emotional freedom? It sounds so nice. (laughs) So I think going back to this distinction between pain and suffering. So what I'm going to say is that emotional freedom looks like the willingness to experience our emotions. I would say for the most part, the suffering that I see in the people that I work with and the suffering that I experience in my own life often is because we are unwilling to allow ourselves to have the emotional experience, to sit with, let's say, grief, to sit with fear, Oftentimes we get all sorts of thoughts like, oh, I shouldn't be sad. What's wrong with me for feeling sad? And then shame comes in. Or sometimes when we feel fear, we'll just jump straight to anger. Oh, fuck that person for making me feel ang- making me feel escape- f- afraid. And what that does is, is that we're just escaping. We're numbing ourselves to our emotional experience. And so emotional freedom comes by allowing ourselves to have this experience as it is, without judgment, with a lot of compassion, without pushing it away or holding on to it. And you know, there's one DBT skill in particular that I think of, which is called mindfulness of current emotions. It's a very prescriptive skill. It has like, I think like four steps. And it's basically like noticing, labeling the emotion that's coming up, watching it like a wave, 
because emotions don't stay around forever. Learning to allow that emotion to be there by noticing what's happening in the body and attending to it. And then without pushing it away or holding on to it, allowing it to go. And that that is emotional freedom. When we can sort of give ourselves the permission to have an experience, that's powerful. To fully experience it. But doesn't it sometimes also take time? It's not just one sit down that it will release or can it be? Yes. I, I appreciate you saying that because I don't want to make this sound easier than it is. Like anything, this is habit. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love about DBT is that it recognizes that at certain points, let's say going back to my measure here, if you're at an eight, a nine, or a 10, it can be really challenging to sit with an emotion, to sort of surf the emotional wave. And at certain times, we just may need to just get through something so that we can then later on, once we find a little bit more calm, once we're not so physically aroused, we can then sort of practice this skill. And to your other point, it is a practice. It is habit. We have to train our minds and our bodies to allow this experience to happen. Now, something just came to heart that we, a lot of us are collectively experiencing. Like I know for myself, it's a lot of anger right now for what Mm -hmm. just happened in the world with the shooting. And Mm -hmm. I'm so fed up with the government and their Mm -hmm. gun laws and like everything. I'm just, I'm fed up, you know? And I think that a lot of people might feel this as well, crying through the day. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just weighing on so many people And obviously it's nothing that we can change. We can't bring these kids back to life, you know? We carry this anger of things that we don't have full control over. So how do we navigate that with these practices? I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, And just noticing, yeah, my own pain. Mm. So I I first want to say this, and this is a DBT skill, which is validation. I want to validate your experience. I want to validate your dad's experience. I want to validate my experience, the experience of those listening. This is horrendous, right? This is, this is, this is real. This, this feels like hell. And I think the first step here is just really sitting with just this, this misery recognizing that this is really painful. I think there's a real urge sometimes when we feel this pain, we feel this fear, This we just want to get rid of it. We want to yell. We want to get angry. And anger makes sense if it's the facts in some ways. And I would say that maybe, at least for me, the first step is just to acknowledge what I'm feeling and, and sort of make space for it by validating it, by saying, yes, this, this, this makes sense. It feels like the only way that we could navigate these waters right now is sitting with it and just acknowledging it, not having to try to transmute it, just simply acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so in, in DBT, the dialectic that we play with is between acceptance and change. Okay. So we're constantly sort of playing with these two poles accepting, acknowledging where we are, where we are in any given moment, validating that experience, and then practicing change, helping us move towards our goals. And so at some point for some people, maybe they feel ready to move towards that change. Maybe it then becomes like practicing skills like problem solving. Maybe it's practicing skills like a radical acceptance, which is, well, that's sort of an acceptance <laughs> skill. Either way, I mean, it's, it's, um, we're all going to have to find that, that specific dialectic for ourselves. When is it time for us to engage in change? When is it time to sit with this discomfort? And, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. I just, I just, I just know, I just notice the urge, at least in myself. And then like, you know, of my, like what I see in the media for us to move so quickly out of this space of validation. Mm. And I, and I, I really want to say this, I in no way want to invalidate 
urges to find solutions. And I think that needs to happen simultaneously. I just also notice at times that that happens at the sort of discounting of the suffering that's happening in this very moment. And and I think about it like this, the folks that I work with, we have this metaphor that like in the beginning stages of treatment, it's like they're living in hell. And my job is to crawl down there with them and just sit and be like, I see, I see that you're living in hell right now. I see you suffering. I see that you're hurting. And I think one of the most powerful things that we can do in our relationships and for one another is simply to acknowledge that human experience, to bear witness to another person's pain. And and then, of course, like, you know, always, I always check in with people with folks do you like would you like some validation right now or would you like some problem solving oh that is good yes because sometimes people just want to vent and be heard but they don't necessarily want advice and vice versa yeah yeah it really depends depends on the person depends on the situation sometimes you know it's like no i've got enough validation i really need some help figuring this out okay i'm here for that sometimes people also want to start to kind of put in their judgments mm. you know and it, it makes people feel um unsafe so i'm just curious of your thoughts of that and how can we avoid sharing judgments judgments are hard i mean we're taught as a society and a culture that you know there are good things and bad things there are good political parties and bad political parties there are you know good people and bad people so it's it's hard to get around that and um we know that judgments intensify emotional suffering that when we think in such extremes um either we can have the tendency of labeling ourselves in that way which only makes increases our suffering or we can label others that way which then will make it at times impossible for us to communicate with others so you know listen like i, I do i have people in my life who are not practicing mindfulness who are not dbt clinicians yes who are judging all the time yes do i sometimes watch the real housewives <laughs> and have negative judgments about some of the folks on the show of course <laughs> and you know it's like i i think there's only so i mean like i i can be held accountable for what i'm doing and i can in a non-judgmental and non-patronizing way sort of just call out like oh i'm noticing a negative judgment like you know uh, you know what let me let me be more concrete here i think one effective thing that i can that i do in my relationships when i'm observing lots of judgment judgment is that i will model sort of labeling that judgment so i will say oh i'm observing some negative judgment right now uh-huh. as a way of cueing to others in my life like oh like i'm practicing some i'm 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 attending to what i'm feeling right now i'm observing this experience and maybe they'll get on board and if not i mean whatever oh i like that i'm observing yeah maybe maybe they won't but at least you you tried and i like that i'm observing this experience one more thing just bringing it back to what's going on in the world just because that's so relevant right now now, there's so many people with different opinions, and everyone is kind of reacting right now. I, I, I get so upset when I see certain perspectives as well, or I come from a state that I don't really mm-hmm. politically align with. And yep. I see my friends as well post things that I'm just like, I wish that you could see beyond the bubble of perspective you have. Mm-hmm. But but that's reacting and that's not, I feel like that would not be beneficial. That's only adding fuel to the fire. So mm-hmm. in a mindful place, how do we respond to this? Because I get so triggered and I try to calm mm-hmm. the fire and just not react, but I want to open their perspective mm-hmm. a bit, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, what I'm going to say is going to sound so dissatisfying um, because like I'm feeling it right. Like, you know, it's I I look at this this conversation around gun control and mm-hmm. it is hard for me not to hold negative judgments about people who are opposed to it. Yep. It is it is. And I almost feel like it's a betrayal if I don't hold those negative judgments. Yeah. 
Same. And, (laughs) you know, I think one of the reasons why DBT is sort of hitting the zeitgeist is because we are so polarized. We are thinking in such black and white, good and bad terms. Mm. And it's not helping us. Mm-hmm. It is, we are all just suffering right now mm-hmm. between, you know, this recent shooting, between climate crisis, between economic inequality and racial inequity. We are suffering right now. Yeah. And I think, and this is going to sound really challenging, and, I, and I'm just noticing my own self-judgment as I say this, I think accepting, I'm going to say a couple of things. I think one, acknowledging that people are doing the best that they can. Ooh, yep. Again, give mm-hmm. what they know. Yep. Give yep. what they've been taught. Yep. Yep. And so offering folks who you may feel like are behaving in really fucked up ways, mm-hmm. some measure of compassion. I think it's one way, at least selfishly for me, to turn the temperature down on my suffering. I don't feel like I'm necessarily surrounded by enemies. I feel like I'm surrounded by other people who are suffering. And I can tolerate that. I can accept that a great deal more than if I was faced with just enemies. I feel that, Jesse. I mean, (laughs) it's hard, right? It's not easy, but this is Mm -mm. more powerful and might actually make a bit of an impact. But I have this inner fire that sometimes wants to. Listen, it makes sense, right? Like, it's just, (laughs) it is... Uh, the the anger fits the facts. And what I say, you know, it's like checking the facts is a DBT skill where we see, does our emotion fit the facts of the situation? And oftentimes anger is something getting in the way of you sort of achieving your goals. Yeah. If your goal is greater equality and there are people who are actively getting in the way of that, yeah, anger makes sense. And that anger doesn't necessarily mean that we need to see other folks as being bad or evil because here's the other thing oh absolutely absolutely and i'm not saying that you're saying that but i'm but i but i notice my own tendency to begin to um really turn folks into an other Mm, right right, to not recognize our shared experience of suffering Mm -hmm. because once i do that once i sort of recognize that then i can have a then 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 i don't feel so i'm like uh, like then i'm like okay like (laughs) then i ask myself what is the function of this political opinion or this type of communication? What is this serving right now? And how can I speak to that? I think that this is going to be so helpful. Some things to keep in mind as we walk the next few weeks. I just decided in my mind now I'm actually releasing this one Monday because of how relevant it is, if that's okay. Of course. (laughs) Definitely. But yeah. yeah. Um, on a lighter note, I'm curious how your creation process was for the game of real life, because there's a lot of creators that listen to this podcast and I love to hear about people's processes and if they had a ritual routine or if they didn't. So I'd love to hear about your creative process for this. Um, such a good question. I, I think urgency and enthusiasm. I was just so excited to learn these skills (laughs) And I was trying to figure out a way where I could sort of metabolize them. Mm. And so I'm a visual thinker. I was like, okay, I'm going to illustrate them. And that's going to be one way that I can really sort of like make them come alive in my own life. And so like, I didn't have like a, you know, like I was doing a lot of hand sketching and then I would transfer it over digitally and then I would illustrate it in Photoshop and I would do all that sort of stuff. But I didn't have like a practice ritual where I would necessarily allocate a certain amount of time and space for it. It was sort of like whenever I could find a free moment, I would go onto my computer and I would do this work. And I will say that like, Part of that was because I was doing all this other work in psychology, in the therapy room, in research and reading, that this became this fun outlet Yeah. where I could sort of 
get my creative juices flowing. Mm, I think that a lot of people can relate to that too, because some people also are not routine people as well, but also they just, they, they're so busy. It's hard to think about, okay, I'm going to for sure do it at this time every single day, mm-hmm. especially as a student. Cause I mean, man, your schedule's all over the place. I mean, it's been a wild couple. I mean, it's been a wild couple of years and like, I, like, I mean, I will say that like when you're, creative project becomes your sort of like self-care routine, it certainly helps make things productive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Un- un- until then work becomes its own addiction. You know. <laughs> That's another on. thing. Okay. Fair enough. That's a whole nother topic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Are there any other... Well, I have to say this, actually. I think that one sign of quote unquote work addiction is that you actually really love what you do though. You know, like it's hard to put it down. So here's the really, oh God, here's the fucked up thing. Uh-huh. Is that like, is, you know, work, I mean, this this is the thing about like substances, like they can be really fucking fun. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I've, I've had to really become very deliberate about my sort of work life because I realized that it can be a very useful way for me to avoid feeling, let's say things like loneliness, let's say mm. things like grief. And it's something that I get a lot of satisfaction and I get rewarded for it in certain ways. It's like I produce things. So it becomes heavily reinforced in my life. So it's become like a real balance of like, okay, going to put this down, going to engage with the world right now. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I know some people that could uh, take those two cents. I mean. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you. It ain't easy. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing, being so honest about what your human is really experiencing, even though you have all the tools. It's interesting how most everyone I talk to, including myself, uh, have many tools, but at the same time, we're still human. And mm-hmm. But it's about being mindful in or responsive instead of reactive in that moment or being mindful about whatever it is. Because your human's going to always be your human, for example. Like, I still have this inner fire, but it's about... I have to shift myself in many moments to not be so reactive or not be so obsessive about work, et cetera, you know? Absolutely. Like therapists, like we, like all of us, we are all just, here's the thing. And and this is where I think therapy gets a bad rap is that traditionally there's been this sense that like, you know, the therapist has like this you know, like they're like this objective observer that has like this knowledge. It's like, no, (laughs) we're all, we're all suffering. We're all walking this path. It just so happens that I've got, I've learned some skills that I want to pass on to you. Yeah, Like that is it. And you know what? And to your point, like there are days where I am very willful and I don't use those skills. Yep. Yep. And hopefully more days than not, I do. Yes. Especially as you you know, continue doing what you're doing. There's more days than not, exactly. which is good. Well, I guess which is helpful. Oh, I like that. I like the mindfulness. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Are there any other messages that come to heart for you before we move on to rapid fire? Um, I, I, I think I'm, I did not know that there was going to be rapid fire. So I'm feeling a lot of excitement for rapid <laughs> fire. I, I, um, let, let's do it. Let's go to rapid fire. Let's go. All right. <laughs> By the way, it does not have to be rapid. I just call it rapid fire because that's what most everyone knows. They know what it is when I say that. If I said something else, they'd be like, what? <laughs> Great. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to answer so quickly. It's going to, I'm not going to even know what I'm saying. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm impressed. Okay. Coffee <laughs> or tea? Coffee. Yes. Thank you. Uh, favorite form of body movement? Uh, kettlebells. Okay, those are fun. Where is that? Is that wait? Is that like one? Is that like a like? Yeah, that's a form. Of I body mean, like movement. people know what you yeah. mean. You want to do kettlebell swings? You want to do a little? Yeah, I get a it. Kettle, I got. Let me get more specific. <laughs> uh, I I I love a kettlebell swing. I love a good one too. Full body. You know what? I I, I used to look so weird doing them. I did not know what, how I was thrusting, but now I think I'm a little better. <laughs> no one. No one. <laughs> does not look weird <laughs> using a kettlebell. It, the whole exercise is completely bonkers. And that's why I love it. Fair enough. Um, where is your happy place? Um, Central Park. Okay. Oh, that's right. You're in Manhattan. I did hear every single time mm-hmm. I talk to someone from New York, there's a fire truck going on in the background or an ambulance, mm-hmm. which definitely happened this podcast. It's just the, you know, <laughs> the, the orchestra of the city. 
Mm-hmm. You probably didn't even notice. You're probably so used I did, to I had it. no idea. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Um, do you happen to know your astrology big three? Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a Sagittarius. I can see that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think. I, oh, God. Like, I do. Uh, I don't know the other two. I just, I, I periodically forget. And I got to tell you, with Sagittarius, I feel like, like, our defining quality is that, like, we're, like, happy or something, which is, like, only kind of the case. <laughs> like, what is it? I feel like your one? defining quality is that you're just... Someone once said this sparkle, which I totally agree with, but also enthusiastic, Yes, which, I mean, you're pretty passionate. My dad is also Sagittarius. He's the most passionate person. I know he talks about anything. He's also an attorney, so (laughs) whatever he talks about, he, like, gets into, and you have this fire as well, and it's just, you're very passionate, enthusiastic about whatever it is you're talking about. I I do have a lot of enthusiasm. (laughs) Whatever. They're just all ways of understanding ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, animal that you connect with most, if any. I like dogs. I know. Okay, I mean, I should be more specific what type of dog. Yeah, just kidding. No. I should. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Like the only one that's coming to right, right now, mind right now is a Boston Terrier because my sister has a Boston Terrier. Oh, I love those. Who's fully, they're just, they're, they're talking about enthusiasm mm-hmm. and just fully dysfunctional, just like a mess of an animal, but so adorable. I, I, I love Boston Terriers. They're so cute. Uh, do you happen to have a morning routine? That I have. All right. I wake up in the morning. I um, go make myself coffee. I sit on my couch and I read the times. Then I go to the gym and then I come back and I meditate and then the day starts. Look at you. You don't throw in your real life cards? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and I play the game of real life (laughs) for 30 minutes every day. If you could gift everyone you know a book, what would it be? I mean, come on. The game of real life. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> excluding my own. Um, and excluding the DBT skills manual. Yeah, no, not um, that one. <laughs> that's, that's like, that's not fun enough. Um, what would I do? What would I do? Um, Are you at your library right now? Do you have a camera in here? Like, I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> WG Seabald, um, you know, uh, he he's an author, has a book called Austerlitz. It is about uh, suffering. It's about, it's essays about World War II. And I don't know. I'm going to go with that. I, I, I It's high-minded. It's high literature. I found, I sound fancy. You are, you're quite bouge, I must say. I Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> if uh, you could time travel to your 16-year-old self to whisper something in his ear, what would you whisper? Okay. So this is a fantasy that I have all the time. Really? This was oh the my question gosh. asked then. Um, okay. So many things. Firstly, I think all about like if I were to take current pop hits and then I were to sing them when I was 16 and perform them and then like I could reap the benefits so that uh-huh. maybe I would like whisper like some pop hit and then I can start my music career. That's brilliant. I mean, thank you. I mean, I'd be a one hit wonder, which would be <laughs> its own set of problems, but whatever. I'd take it as it is. <laughs> So what are the current pop songs? Oh, oh gosh, I don't know. Anything by the musician Robin because you know. Okay. You know. Yeah. I, but like is that even poppy enough? I don't Robin's know. Robin's good. How about like I feel like I should go big. Big. Like Jack Harlow right now or something. Isn't he like the biggest one right now? Oh. I don't, I don't eat, I couldn't tell you <laughs> a sing. I know that that he does the Fergie glamorous song. Yes. Or like uses it. Yes. Which I mean, Fergie, all the Fergie Fergie classics. That's what I would There you go. There you go. (laughs) That is actually a brilliant answer, by the way. I'm serious. It's it's very uh, unconventional for this, and I love it. (laughs) How would you advise the Your Own Magic listeners to create their own magic? How to create your own magic. I would say really take the time to understand what sorts of things you value. And then think about what it looks like to move towards those values. So if values are our compass, what are your signposts along that path? 
Values are your compass. What are your signposts? Okay, chills. <laughs> chills. Where can everyone find and connect with okay, you? Okay, so um, I got a website, talkgood.org. I got an Instagram, talk is good. I kind of have a TikTok. I'm not going to even say it. But I do have um, a company that I started called Therahive. Therahive.com. We're launching a study for my dissertation in the next couple of weeks. And then we launch the full DBT online skills course in the fall. Oh, that is exciting. That's big. Okay, Therahive. All of that, of course, is in the show notes. Thank you. And Jesse, I feel full of joy right now after speaking with you. And you're a guest that I want to have on again 100% because everything you said really resonated with me. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on. And I would love to come back and I will think of more (laughs) answers to more pop songs, which I will then call my 16-year-old self. No, no, no. I think Robin is perfect. Robin is No, good, it's that's, too that's niche. Sh- it's only like the, like, you know, like, like, like the gays in the audience who are going to be like, yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> no, Except, I, I also I love like, Robin. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair what? enough. Fair enough. I, the, our target <laughs> audience, your audience will identify. This, yes. My audience will definitely <laughs> identify. <laughs> anyway, Jesse, thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Yomis, that is a wrap. That is a wrap for this episode. I hope that something spoke deeply to you, expanded you in some way. Please let me know if so. You can catch me on Instagram at Raquel Mantra. I spell Raquel a different way than most, so you can see the spelling in the show notes. Or hang out with the Yomis, the like-minded, very conscious and expansive and helpful souls on the Euro Magic Facebook group especially a place to turn to when it comes to, well, whatever you're going through. And there are several tools on the euromagic.life membership site. All right, well, thank you so, so much and have a magical rest of your day.